Well, as you guys know, we've been in this study of Genesis 1 to 11 for a while now, and we've settled in here for a little bit in the end of Genesis chapter 2, which takes us to this subject of man's relationships, and really it takes us to the foundation or the beginning of man in relationship in the creation of man and woman, and really more specifically in the creation of woman as a fit helper for man and the presentation of woman to man as a fit helper and man's affirmation of that by saying, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then the confirmation of God's word on this marriage relationship when he says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And so we have this, this series of verses at the end of chapter 2 that really introduced to us this whole concept as our, in our study of a biblical anthropology, a biblical study of man. We have the beginning of man in relationship. And that beginning relationship is the relationship of marriage. And it stands to reason that as you think about uh, man in relationship, or actually you think about more broadly the anthropology of man, the developmental cult- culture and customs, in society and so forth of man, that foundational relationship of marriage is the logical starting point. That's where all life begins. The command to uh, multiply and fill the earth comes out of that relationship. So you have the foundations of society in the context of marriage and family and the raising of children and the propagating of man as the image bearer of God in the world. Man as the subduer of creation on behalf of God. Man as God's representative Uh, on planet earth and carrying his image and ruling his created order and so forth. So we decided to settle in here a little bit on the subject of marriage because the passage itself um, has imagery and has uh, language in it that certainly is uh, vibrant with meaning for us in the context of of the marriage relationship, but we wanted to kind of expand our thinking a little bit beyond just the Genesis chapter 2 passage and look more broadly at a biblical model for marriage as it plays out throughout the entirety of Scripture. And of course, there are some key verses or key passages in the book of, uh, in, in the Scriptures, primarily uh, New Testament passages that, that speak more fully to the subject of marriage, and we've started to look a little bit at those. We've still, though, been focusing on a pretty sweeping view, and today I want us to sort of narrow our focus down a little bit further and start looking at some of the the truth principles, some of the facts, and some of the principles that that we can draw out from these passages on marriage that will help guide our both our view and our perspective of what a biblical model of marriage really is. And for those of us who are in a marriage relationship, our particular roles and responsibilities and the way that we function in that relationship uh, according to God's design. So that's where we're going to go to today. <clears throat> now, obviously, we've stated this over and over again, and we pointed to passages of Scripture that affirm this, that clearly in Scripture... The Bible affirms that, that man and woman, are, they share in their image-bearing function, their image-bearing essence, if you will. That man and woman were both created in the image of God, meaning that an essential nature, an essential value, an essential purpose and design by their creator, they're the same. They're equal. They're, they, they share that common image-bearing function and role and essence and nature. It's also clear in the scripture that man and woman have been given shared responsibilities in the context of filling the earth together. Uh, They're both given this dominion mandate to have dominion and subdue the earth in Genesis chapter 1. So we know that there are shared responsibilities, there's shared essence and purpose before God and his created purpose. Um, We even see the Apostle Paul in the New Testament pointing out that there is a, a, a mutual physical ownership that's in play in the marriage relationship and that husbands and wives, in the context of marital intimacy, they, they have ownership over each other in essence. The way the Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, is it says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, the context of that passage is to really correct some teaching that was going on in the Corinthian, in the, Corinth, the church at Corinth, where there was a, a certain type of belief that was uh, could be ascribed as asceticism or, or self-denial as being some form of greater spiritual virtue, 
And in the context of marriage, it was, it was denying the physical intimacy in the marriage relationship and, and ascribing a certain spiritual virtue to that denial. And the Apostle Paul is trying to correct that type of thinking in the church in Corinth. And the way that he sort of highlights that correction is to say that there is a mutual shared ownership, one of the other, in the physical realm in the intimate relationship of marriage. So again, we see common shared intimacy there. Okay, common shared essence, common shared uh, responsibility and role in this relationship. Um, the Apostle Paul highlights even further in chapter 11 of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, verses 11 to 12, this interdependence that man and woman have on each other, physiologically or biologically, if you will. He says in that passage, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. So he even goes so far as to say, even in the, in the sort of the natural, biological progression of things, that there is an interdependency between man and woman. They're not independent of one another. <clears throat> we also see in First Peter... That both husbands and wives, as Peter says, they are both heirs of the grace of life. And that this truth about them both being fellow heirs of this grace of life is a key component in their understanding of how their marriage relationship should work. And we'll look at that in a little more detail later on. And without question, we see in the Galatians passage in Galatians chapter 3, that there are no distinctions between men and women before the cross of Christ. Okay, it says in, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So from a theological perspective, from a redemption perspective, from a salvation through Christ perspective, there's no distinction between man and woman. Man is not saved in a different way or through a different means than woman and vice versa. And that's the, the essence of that passage there. The same way would be true of Jew and Greek and so forth. So all that, to be, all that being said, while we know that Scripture makes it plain that there is uh, a lot of data to support the equality of men and women in essence, Theologically, before Christ, they're both equally fallen, and therefore they both equally need the same degree of salvation. They have shared interdependencies, uh, both biologically as well as in the context of marriage. All that being said, we, we also pointed out through many, many passages of Scripture in previous times together that the clear model that you see throughout Scripture regarding male and female relationships, particularly in the context of marriage, is this model of male responsibility and headship that is complemented by female help and submission, particularly within this context of marriage, and that it is this, this is the defining relationship model that you see throughout Scripture. Now, we asked the question last time, and we kind of answered it in a, a fairly brief, but I think clear enough way for our purposes here, the prevailing question for us when you look at the, past, at the scriptures as they just are laid out before us, the prevailing question for us, particularly as it relates to this context of marriage, is, are these, is this model of male headship and responsibility complemented by female help and submission, is this model confined to a past culture? Is it confined to an Old Testament culture in which it was a patriarchal type of environment and you had a sort of a male-dominated kind of culture? Or is it confined to a Greco-Roman environment, for example, in the New Testament? And so it's, it's very culturally constrained. And so for us in our modern culture, in our modern time, as we progressed, quote-unquote progressed, moved forward, evolved, however you want to say it, societally and, and, and culturally, to where women have become more and more equal, more and more equal in, in, uh, in the, the, the economy and in the marketplace, um, more and more equal in all manner of, of quote-unquote rights, uh, that kind of thing, that is there a, a responsibility on our part to look at these passages of Scripture that clearly lay out this 
this distinctive role of male headship and responsibility and, and female help and submission, is there a responsibility for us to be faithful, accurate interpreters of Scripture to go to those passages and really discern and kind of, and kind of weed out those cultural constraints that would really only be appropriate in the time in which they were written? Some uh, scholars would say that... <clears throat> That the writers of Scripture, the writers of Scripture themselves, the Apostle Paul, for example, or Peter, they, they would be writing as an accommodation to the culture. So, in other words, to avoid any unnecessary offense to the, the wider culture, they wrote in such a way about this issue of marriage as an accommodation to what was already going on. Whether right or wrong, good or bad, it's just they were accommodating their instruction to that culture. And in fact, that does happen in Scripture from time to time. I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that is, is totally foreign or uncommon in terms of Scripture. And in fact, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, which talks about head coverings, for, no, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which talks about head coverings and hair length. I mean, you have this discussion there, and in the, in the, in built into that discussion is this idea about marriage and and, and, and the, the headship of men, man over woman, and, and woman was made for man, not man for woman. You have this discussion that takes you back to Genesis in the creation narrative, but it, there's also a lot of sort of current cultural implications there about things like head coverings in the context of worship and the length of hair and those kinds of things. So it is appropriate to ask the question, about the cultural realities that might be in play in the context of the passage to make sure that we're not trying to bring into our current time something that really should be confined to that culture, that, that the way that it, the text was written was to make sure that things were clear in that day and time, and we have to use some interpretive and historical uh, insight to make sure we draw out the right, the right uh, interpretation, the right understanding, and therefore apply the passage of Scripture properly to our own lives and to our own, our own place. And we answer that question by saying <clears throat> the, the nature of this role distinction, male headship and responsibility, female help and submission, is transcendent. It does carry on and carry forward. It is not something that is just purely a constraint to a culture or an accommodation on the part of the writers to that particular culture. And when we talked about how when you look at the passages themselves, you do not see, particularly in Ephesians, um, chapter 5, or even if you look at the first Peter passage that talks about husbands and wives, and we're going to look at those a little more closely in, in just a few minutes, you do not see indications in those passages of some type of cultural uh, confinement of the principles about male and female relationships in marriage. You, you don't see that there. In fact, in Ephesians, it completely blows up anything, any, any tight attachment to cultural implications because virtually the entire book it begins and carries forward through with all kinds of transcendent truth. I mean, it starts in chapter 1. We pointed out last time. It starts off talking about things that happened before time began and calling and election and those kinds of things. We're talking about transcendent for all time and eternity theological realities and truth. And that carries through. We looked at a section in chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is talking about his purpose in writing about this mystery that has long been hidden but is now being revealed, this mystery of salvation through Christ that is that sort of tearing down the barrier between Jew and Gentile and, and on and on it goes. So there's these transcendent ideas that are being discussed all throughout the letter to the Ephesians and the subject of marriage comes up just flowing through that, that natural context. And so there is no, in the text itself, no constraint of the instruction on marriage to some past archaic, sort of caveman-like, male domination kind of culture that we need to really clean up for our purposes. That's not what you see in the teachings here about, about male headship and responsibility and female help and submission in the context of marriage. So, if we affirm that the model of male responsibility and headship that is complemented by female help and submission, particularly within this context of marriage, is the defining relationship model throughout Scripture... If we affirm that, and if we conclude that this model is based upon applicable, transcendent, and inspired principles rather than culturally confined accommodations by the writers of Scripture, if we affirm that as well, then it is imperative, we said last time, 
that we seek to deeply understand this model so that we can live out our respective roles as men and women and husbands and wives with increasing faithfulness to the glory of God. If these things are true, then we have a responsibility that is upon us, knowing that this is the foundational sort of core hub relationship context for all of society, out of which children are born and raised and future generations are, are set and established in their ways of thinking and their patterns of thought, particularly their patterns of thought toward their maker and toward those whom God has made. That's the environment in which that instruction principally takes place. So we have a, a huge responsibility to, to really understand these roles that we are to fulfill, the purpose for them, God's intention for them, the glory of God in them, and to walk faithfully as God calls us to. So we're going to look at some specific facts, some principles, and some implications that we can draw out from other passages of Scripture, some of which we've already read and alluded to uh, over the last few weeks, that give really profound shape and order and purpose to this foundational relationship we call marriage. And we have eight of them. There's eight of these points that we're going to walk through. I think we're going to get through three today, and hopefully we'll get through five next time, and then we'll move on into Genesis chapter 3. I'm really eager to get into Genesis chapter 3 because the only way you can make sense of our world that we live in now at, at all is to uh, really to study and understand Genesis chapter 3. So the first principle, the first truth principle, the first fact that we need to understand about this Biblical model of male headship and responsibility and female help and support in the context of marriage is that the complementary roles, as they're described in Scripture, are innate. They're innate. What does innate mean? Who can tell me what innate means? If you can't, I've got a definition here that I took right off the Internet so we know it's true. Natural, yes, it's a natural part. The definition, I got three uh, definitions that, that I pulled from um, probably dictionary.com, I, I guess. Um, the first is existing in one from birth, inborn or native. The second is it's inherent in the essential character of something. And the third is that it's originating in or arising from the intellect or the constitution of the mind rather than learned through experience. Those are the three definitions of innate that are given at dictionary.com. So when I say that these ideas of male headship and responsibility and female help and support are innate, I'm essentially saying that you're born with those kinds of characteristics in you, and it's essentially part of your maleness and your femaleness. Now, that's probably not a very popular thing for me to say out in public, right? I mean, think about what it is I just said. I just said that, guys, you were born with an innate quality in your created makeup to fulfill a role of responsibility and headship in the context of male-female or really marital relationship. And ladies, what I said about you is that you were born with innate characteristics based upon your femaleness that are oriented toward help and support and submission. How dare I say such a thing, right? How dare I? Well, I think that, let me ask you guys the question to get some, I want to I kind of see if you, um, how much you've thought about the nature of, of this kind of debate in our culture and, and how it plays out in, in, in typical fashion. Let me ask you this question, and I'll ask for your, some, your feedback on this. Why is it that that kind of statement would be so offensive to so many? What are some reasons that would create such consternation in the minds of so many for me to say such a thing? Any ideas? Okay. So elaborate on that. She said the hyper-patriarchal movement. So elaborate on that a little bit. Um, the mentality that women are there to serve men and that they are men's decisions are infallible. Okay. So, so legitimate 
sinful abuse of and complete sort of misappropriation and application of a, a role and responsibility of, of leadership by men. Is that kind of what you're saying, that the, the male abuses and culture of that role? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that's definitely part of history and it's part of experience, you know, centuries past all the way to now where, and we talked about this before, where uh, when you go to Genesis chapter 3 and we start looking at the fall, the, the epicenter of the fall centered around, and, and really the curse centered around this, this playing out of a broken relationship between men and women in the context of marriage and the carrying out of these roles. And that has been on full display since the fall. So kind of like a pendulum swing, you know, it's like trying to correct something that is really legitimately wrong and out of skew, but the correction often takes you to an imbalanced direction. So that's one, one, one contributor for sure. I think one thing if you look at today's society is you have some gender neutral uh, identifiers. And so like, to even try and say, well, you have an innateness that distinguishes you, you know, male, female, especially with what we have today with the LGBT movement and all that kind of stuff where it's all, you are what you choose to be. Mm-hmm. You are what you were born with. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the, the prevailing and persistent message of a modern culture that wants to obliterate gender distinction pretty much across, on every front, um, and it's intentional, it's designed, it's, it's well-funded in its efforts, uh, it's comprehensive. So there, there's no doubt that that's going to influence people's thinking, especially when you talk, start talking about multiple generations of this kind of thinking and instruction and the fact that this kind of mindset is predominant in the academy and in colleges and universities. And so multiple generations of graduates graduating, going into the workforce, becoming adults in society, possibly getting married or cohabitating and having kids and raising them with the same kind of mindset. So yeah, you're basically going at a tidal wave of there are no gender distinctions in just the the psyche of the culture that's been building for a number of years. Yeah, I mean, the statement that I made, if you, if you take it a certain way, it does sound almost like I am confining you to a certain outcome and you have no control over it, so just deal with it. I mean, that is, that is kind of one way it could be taken. And so our desire for autonomy and independence and to be self-made and to, and to make our own way, that, that just completely clashes with that, that mindset for sure. Right. That's right. That's right. I mean, I mean, I'm a man. I'm saying that. I mean, I wish Alicia, would you mind coming up here and saying the same thing so I at least get a little bit of breathing room? Um, she may not agree. I don't know. We we hadn't discussed this lesson before we I got up here. Um, but uh, but yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's 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 a message for sure in this context is being delivered by you know a guy who just wants control, or in in a broader sense, that's kind of the driving the driving factor. The interesting reality to that is that the converse perspective is the same motivation. Everybody wants control. Everybody does. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, but that's the problem with the whole deal. We all want control. So just to say that the men want it, yes, but so do the women, right? I mean, we're all in that same, that same boat. Well, let me just kind of, some of this stuff is really going to feed into a little bit of what I have next here to talk about. Um, I'm I'm saying that there are innate qualities that are built into the DNA, the creative material of man and woman that are tied to this role of male responsibility and headship and female submission and help. 
So let's, let's build that, that case a little bit more. I first want to go to the realm of science. You'll be happy to know that science has confirmed that men and women are actually different. Okay? So if you were wondering if that was sort of in some mysterious realm, a quarter of your mind, and you had this big question mark looming as to whether or not women, men, men and women are different, science has confirmed, thankfully, you know, I mean, I, this article I got, I think, was like from 2005. So finally, you know, after all this time, we now know that men and women are actually different. And obviously, I'm being a little bit uh, sarcastic. I mean, when, when think, about, think about the cultural, um, natural way things play out for us. If someone has a baby, what does everybody want to know? Or if somebody's having a baby, right? Do you know if it's going to be a boy or a girl? They don't, want, they don't say, do you know if it's going to be cute or, I mean, you know, I mean, they, they don't, do you know if it's going to have brown hair or black hair? They're not looking for specific characteristics. It all centers around, you having a boy or are you having a girl? So culturally and in our own way of thinking, we're always all thinking about the distinctions between the two. And if someone says you're going to have a boy, they're going to think one thing. They're naturally going to go down one path about what that might mean. And if says, they say you're going to have a girl, same kind of thing in a different direction. But Researchers have found, or I should say advances in technology, particularly medical technology, have enabled much more detailed study of, and research on brain function and a lot of imaging technology and so forth to, to be able to study brain waves and brain function. And like I said, uh, they've determined that not only are men and women or boys and girls different because, you know, when they're born you say, hey, that's a boy, hey, that's a girl, um, but at the, at the neurological level, there are differences. Now, let me just kind of read a little bit of information here to you. Researchers have found greater neural connectivity from front to back and within one hemisphere in males, suggesting their brains are structured to facilitate connectivity between perception and coordinated action. In contrast, in females, the wiring goes between the left and the right hemispheres, suggesting that they facilitate communication between the analytical and intuition. On average, men are more likely better at learning and performing a single task at hand, like cycling or navigating directions, whereas women have superior memory and social cognition skills, making them more equipped for multitasking and creating solutions that work for a group. Okay, so that's just one small piece of a whole vast array of research articles and documentation that you can look at about some of the differences that are being kind of determined and, and conclusions that are kind of being drawn about the actual neurological distinctions between how men's brains work and women's brains work, okay? So that doesn't prove the point, though. That, that, that's not, I, I went way further than that, didn't I? When I start talking about male headship and responsibility and female submission and help, I, that's just saying there's a difference neurologically. They function differently. And women's brains are wired in such a way or function in such a way that might make them better at this, whereas men's brains are so forth and they can function a little bit better at this. But that doesn't say anything about what I just said, roles and responsibilities from a biblical perspective. So let me go a little bit further. Researchers have also determined the presence of what is called neuroplasticity, who knows what neuroplasticity is? Ability for the brain to uh, change depending on behaviors. Did you catch that? Did you guys hear that? Neuroplasticity, it's, it's real, and it's the ability for the brain to, to really develop and change how it functions through a variety of stimuli, external stimuli being some of them. Okay. So let me just read on with this. Uh, it's an overarching term used to describe lasting changes to the brain that can add, excuse me, that can and do occur throughout the lifespan of the brain. Neuroplastic change can occur at small scales, such as physical changes to individual neurons, or at whole brain scales, such as cortical remapping in response to injury. Now think about that. You know when someone's injured and they have to relearn how to do things completely because the function that they can no longer do after the injury is in a different part of their brain and they have to re, sort of remap and rewire their brain to be able to function a certain way? You've heard things like that, right? So that's, that's kind of the gist of that. It could be a very sweeping remapping that could take place. 
as opposed to just a very small you know, neuron to neuron kind of change. It says, however, cortical remapping, the big sweeping kind of change, only occurs during a certain time period, meaning that if a child were injured and it resulted in brain damage, then cortical remapping would most likely occur. However, if an adult was injured and it resulted in brain damage, then cortical remapping would not occur since the brain has made the majority of its connections. Okay, so that, that kind of makes sense too. Just if you think about uh, what happens to people as they get older, just socially and, and just generally. I'll tell you, because I'm older than several of you, we get stuck in our ways, right? You heard of that? The older you get, you kind of get more, you, you know, I mean, grumpy old man kind of thing. There was a whole movie about that, right? I mean, that was like scientific. Didn't you know that? And then there was grumpier old men, like two movies to prove the point again. But the fact of the matter is, is that our, our brains, they, you kind of get the, those, those, those mappings kind of get set as you get older. So you kind of get more set in your ways. The developmental stages are earlier on. All right, so is everybody completely bored now about brain discussion? So here's the, here's the point I want to get to on this. Behavior, environmental stimuli, thought, and emotions may also cause neuroplastic change, which has significant implications for healthy development, learning, memory, and recovering from brain damage. Now, right there, that opens the door for the argument that says that the roles and responsibilities the cultural norms and realities of male and female relationships are not innate, but they're environmentally influenced so much so that it does make a change in someone's actual brain chemistry and neurological function. And therefore, they adopt certain patterns of thinking and ways of behaving in a culture and a society because of this perpetuating external cultural stimuli. An example of that would be you have a baby boy, and you put them in a blue room, and you give them Tonka trucks. And you have a baby girl, and you put her in a pink room, and you give her dolls to play with. And so by virtue of us doing that, we're, in essence, we're, we're influencing neuroplasty in that child's brain. Be careful. You guys are going to be influencing. You're going to be doing neuroplasty. No, anyway, never mind. But that's the point, that you actually are providing external stimuli Okay, that is completely cultural in nature. It's not innate. It's like I'm a guy and I'm a dad and I have a baby and my son is going to have a blue room and he's going to play with trunk, trucks and he's going to be a man's man and he's going to make it to the NBA. That's my plan, right? And so I'm basically taking my own cultural predilections, my own sort of sense of what it means to be a man and be a male, and I'm infusing that into my child and at a very young age because of the way that the brain works, it really does form and shape that little boy into, you know, my master plan design. I mean, that's kind of the rough idea behind this, this issue of neuroplasty. So that's where people in the scientific community and otherwise would say that, no, this, these, these, this, this, this archaic notion of male leadership or male headship and female submission and help and all that business that, that, those are constructs from ages and ages of patriarchal male dominance and, and abuse. And it just gets reprogrammed into the minds of people generation after generation after generation. And we have scientific proof now. We have neurological studies. We have brain imagery, imaging technology that allows us to kind of validate that. That's kind of the nature of, of the argument that's made. So this, this leads people to assume that most of the differences between males and females, they do correlate to differences in brain structure and chemistry and function, but they develop through this idea of external stimuli. And this leads to value judgments of, that the differences are bad. Now, here's the thing. When you go to a place to say, and this is where, this is where we often go wrong in our thinking about God's purposes and God's plans in general. This is, this is, this is Genesis 3 fallen sin nature kind of stuff. We often go and take what God has designed, whatever it might be, and we reinterpret it through our own lens of self-centeredness, self-gratification, selfish desire, and we determine that it's not, it's not good. It's not good that way. In fact, it's bad. So in our society, in our culture, to say anything about 
distinct roles between men and women, even distinct differences between genders we've already talked about. It's not only uh, something that I don't like. It's not only something that I just don't, I don't like the way that sounds. It's actually bad. And so for you to think like that means that you are bad. You see how it's, it's moved beyond just differences of opinion about a subject? Now, if you hold to anything related to a biblical model as it relates to male and female relationships in marriage, as it's just clearly taught in Scripture, then you're not just off your rocker or you're not just some kind of religious fanatic. That's, that, there's, an, there's been an immoral quality assigned to it. That's an immoral position for you to hold. Socially, culturally, relationally immoral for us to have that kind of position. All the while... People are trying to re-engineer society in such a way that everyone, who, everyone's individual self-interest is magnified and glorified. It's just like you described about, and you said, being self-made, and you said obliterating, let, let you kind of develop your own sense of gender identity. There's an intentional effort to re-engineer society and society's way of thinking in such a way that says it's only fair and equitable to let people become who they want to become, even to the point of gender identity. And so the result of this, and this is where we're living, and we, ha- we looked at a lot of statistics and data about this a few weeks ago. Here's the world that we're living in now after a few generations of this kind of developing thinking and instruction and training and teaching in schools and colleges and the media and so forth. We are living in a time now where marriage is disintegrating as an institution. The, the, the stable, constant home and family environment is no longer a predominant model that is being played out day to day in the United States of America. That's the, the statistical reality. And you have all kinds of of breakdown that takes place as a result of that. This, this push to re-engineer society so that people get along better, so that it's fair and equitable, has only led to more strident conflict, more broad conflict and division amongst people, greater inequality, greater conflict, sweeping discontent in marriages, breakdowns of marriages, no longer families intact, multi-generational confusion about identities and values and purpose and life and, and so on it goes. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2. And it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. The differences between men and women are created by God for His purposes and His glory, His creative design. And they're good, and they're beautiful, and they're complementary. They're not bad. They're not wicked. They're not immoral. They're not confining. They're not limiting. They're not debilitating to men or to women, either or, if they're played out and lived out according to Scripture. They're innate. Now, I didn't say that they were innate. God said that in Genesis, and either we believe that or we don't. Or we believe that when God said that he made Adam first and that there was not a helper fit for him, and then he said, I will make a helper fit for him, and then he made Eve and brought her to him and said, now here's your helper fit for you. I mean, either you believe that or you don't. Either we believe that or we don't. But the way that the Scripture talks about it in Genesis is that it is innate. It's a part of God's created Design and his purpose. A few more minutes and we'll wrap up. Secondly, these complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are transcendently purposeful. Not only innate, but they're transcendently purposeful. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says this Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God's purpose in creating man and woman, the way that he created them, was a part of his design and intent, and it has transcendent purpose because God himself is transcendent. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Again, tying back to this idea of transcendence. In other words, these male and female roles, they reflect the nature of God and the inherent submissiveness that exists in the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that there is a willing submission that takes place within the Godhead? That Christ himself submitted to the will of the Father. Over and over you see that again in the Gospels, right? That there is this essence of mutual submission and complementary submission even within the Godhead himself. And so if God says, let us make man in our image, then you have to believe that there's going to be elements of that that have to be manifested in some way. Well, man is not a trinity. So he's created man and he creates woman. And it's a design intent, it's a transcendent purpose, on one hand, to be somewhat of a reflection of this submissiveness and and relationship and role that exists even within the Godhead itself. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. That's transcendent in nature. That's not just, hey, guys, you're the boss. Girls, you're under them, so just come into line. Scriptures attach transcendent purpose to these roles. They also reflect the essence of Christ's relationship to his church, his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, you see this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. For his body uh, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in every way to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. These are transcendent purposes that are being ascribed to or, or tacked on to or made in, inherent in this role and responsibility discussion that Paul's having here about wives and husbands. As Christ loved the church, husbands love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. It reflects Christ's relationship to his bride, to his church. And lastly, under this heading of it being transcendently purposeful, that these roles, as God's laid them out for men and women in marriage, they manifest genuine spiritual power. Genuine spiritual power. Think about the passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 2, 1 to 2, and then down to verse 7. Think about this for a second. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Then you drop down to verse 7 and you see the husband's instruction. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter is attaching transcendent purpose to the the playing out of these roles. On the one hand, the wife who's married to an unbelieving spouse who doesn't obey the word, that he might be won without a word by her pure and chaste conduct. And to the man, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. There's transcendent purpose in these roles. One more, and we'll be done. I've got to get through three at least. The complementary roles of male responsibility and headship and female help and submission are comprehensively practical. They're very practical. There's a very practical reason for having these kinds of roles between husband and wife. They serve to sustain God's orderly design and purpose in creation, which naturally involves and requires functional roles of leadership and submission. Now think about this for a second. What would the planet look like If there was no one exercising leadership and authority and no one submitting, 
just practically, what would that look like, especially after the fall? I mean, we see what it kind of looks like in all kinds of scenarios. Wars and fighting. In fact, the human race would probably not even be around anymore because we would have all killed each other. There's a practical element here that that God has designed roles and responsibilities like this to perpetuate order in his created world. It's practical in nature. Orderly design and purpose is described in general in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. So there's order. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So perpetuate this image-bearing responsibility. Perpetuate this dominion mandate. Perpetuate this order that I'm setting in motion here. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that's described in general what's taking place there. Then you see God's orderly purpose and design specifically described in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18, and then verses 20 to 24. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then verse 22 of Genesis chapter 2, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And then you have this purpose of order to be manifest and sustained and perpetuated. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there you have that formative relationship of marriage that produces children and offspring and continues that orderly design and purpose of dominion and subduing the earth and ruling the earth as God's good and just and righteous image bearers. There's a practical purpose here. And when you get to the New Testament passages and you look at, for example, Ephesians chapter 5, if you start back up in Ephesians chapter 5 and you look at verse 15, it starts there by saying, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father the name of, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's your indication of submission as a general principle. Then it gets to verse 22 and starts to delineate the various spheres of orderly living and submission and leadership. Wives, to your own husbands. The submission verb is in verse 21. So it says, wives, submit to your own husbands, but that's really just carrying it down in terms of the English translation. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord. But the husband is head of the wife, and so, so it goes. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25, and so that goes. Then you get to chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Then you get to chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. You get this whole discussion here of orderly submission and leadership that plays out in the context of any society. So there's got to be a practical rationale here. If there's complete autonomy and perfect equality, then sin is going to create constant conflict and a total lack of order. God's purpose for man will not be fulfilled. You get to second you get to first Peter, and I won't I won't turn there, but first Peter, the section on marriage about wives submitting to your husbands and then husbands living with your wives in an understanding way, that whole section is the same kind of deal. It's hey, how do we live in an environment where we are being persecuted by ungodly rulers? And it's the principle of submission. Submitting to those in authority whom God has placed over you. And it tracks all the way down through these various spheres of interaction. And it's calling the believer to submission. In the, in the realm of government, submitting to those in authority over you. In the realm of work, submitting to those who have oversight or responsibility over you. In the realm of the home, it takes it all the way through. In other words, the context that you see this instruction playing out, both if you go back to the Genesis narrative and you carry it forward into the New Testament context, you see a very practical purpose here. It's just a practical necessity for order, a practical necessity for the ordering of human interaction and relationship in the context of society. 
When I say order, I don't mean male domination, I'm giving you an order, do what I say. You understand what I'm saying, right? I'm talking about general orderly living out in God's created world according to God's purpose and his design for there to be order. Otherwise, he wouldn't say, have dominion over the earth, subdue the earth. I mean, he wouldn't be giving that as a mandate in the creation narrative, right? So the three things we've talked about so far, that there is an innate nature to these roles. It's kind of in the DNA. God made us this way. Whether we flesh that out consistently or not is a completely different matter, and we're going to talk about that, right? I mean, we're constantly messing this up, so don't get me wrong. Just because we're born with a certain innate quality or tendency that God made us to be a certain way doesn't mean that we do it, right? Like we fail miserably all the time. But it is innate. God made us that way. Secondly, it's transcendently purposeful. Everything that you see discussed about these roles and responsibilities in, in the context of marriage is tied to something much bigger than the role itself. It's transcendent in nature. It has to do with the character and purpose and redemptive plan of God himself. It's all tied to that. And it's also very practical. If you just think about the ordering of society, we all have to submit to someone. We're all living in submission. We're even submitting to one another in the context of marriage. But there is a need for an order that God has for us. And that order is manifest most beautifully and most consistently when men and women in the context of marriage fulfill the roles that God's laid out for them. We're going to close with that. And next week, we'll talk about how these roles require supernatural power, how these roles are not mutually exclusive in their function, how these roles are not contingent upon reciprocal faithfulness. In other words, you don't do what you're supposed to do because someone else is doing what they're supposed to do. You don't have to wait for someone else to do the right thing for you to do the right thing. These roles and the playing out of these roles are at the epicenter of our sanctification. And these roles can be profoundly satisfying in the context of marriage and family. We'll close. Let's pray.